0: I can't do a better introduction to Emily Wilson, classicist and translator of Homeric poetry, than this.
1: Goddess, sing of the cataclysmic wrath of great Achilles, son of Peleus.
0: Caused... Because the state news profiles that dissect not just her, but her modern translations of the Odyssey and the Iliad, they do not do her justice. And made
1: men the spoil of dogs, a banquet for the birds. And so the plan of Zeus unfolded. Starting with the conflict between...
0: great. I've learned that the world of classical translators is very intense. That their fan base is very intense. Capable of passionate reviews of translations from Pope to Lattimore to Fagels. And if you haven't heard of any of those people, this is the conversation for you. Now, there is something about the way that Emily Wilson has translated these classic works that's considered a bit controversial. And to me, really familiar in the way that it touches on the nature of storytelling and objectivity.
1: There's that question of how invested are you personally in the story and you're supposed to be, but you're not supposed to be too much so. Or there's that like judgment about like who who gets to tell which stories. And I think that, that sort of thing that we've talked about in the relation to translation a little bit with people... Doing the ridiculous she's a woman, so she must be woke and she must be illegitimate kinds of stuff. I think that also happens
0: in journalism. So, what role, if any, does the identity of the translator play in the reimagining of a story? And what's it like to tell your own story after spending much of your career interpreting and being interpreted by others? I'm Audie Cornish. This is the assignment. When Emily Wilson was a kid in Oxford, her school would do a nativity play. Now, one year when she was around eight, they shook things up and did Homer's epic instead.
1: I was the goddess Athena, and I got to make myself a tinfoil helmet, and I loved it. It was great. I was a really shy kid and so getting to be a warrior goddess was super empowering for me and it really gave me this sort of zest for the idea that antiquity has this world of intense feelings and intense stories where... There were these goddesses swooping around all the time who were so much more important than the mortal men. And that was just so so thrilling and interesting. So then I started learning Latin and Greek in high school.
0: But it makes sense to me the work you would have gone into now, because if you're a quiet person, maybe a little bit of a bookish person, what you're doing now is the best of both worlds. Books, but also wearing the foil hat and (laughs) having a sword. Exactly. You're an Athena inside.
1: On the inside, I'm always, I will always be an Athena or, or an Odysseus or Achilles, too. I'm, I'm them as well.
0: I can hear how, even though your translations are considered sort of restrained, I can hear your energy in the work. Like the performance right. of it is different from just the page.
1: I mean, I want to invite performance. I want to invite the reader to do their own reading out loud, to hear it however you want to hear it. I don't want to have the page be so cluttered that I'm sort of imposing how you're going to read it. I want it to be read by many different voices and to include the possibilities for many different ways of performing it.
0: I guess it's funny thinking of you going from being that kid to being this.
1: Right. I mean, obviously, I didn't actually go Zoom straight from being eight to being, you know, 51, and here I am with translations. I've gone through a whole bunch of... But your
0: enthusiasm. Yeah, my
1: enthusiasm's still there, and the 80-year-old kid is still t- totally alive in me. I mean, the, the kid who wants to play pretend, and there's a side of me that always came out through playing pretend, which also comes out through translation, which is a kind of playing pretend. But I'm, I'm pretending to write as Homer. I'm pretending to write as Sophocles. And that's not me, but I find it is me, too.
0: When I um, looked you up and I, I start doing the research. Um, right away, the the press goes something like this: There is this woman, Emily Wilson, okay. doing a woman translation because she's the first ever woman uh-huh. to translate this work, and therefore uh-huh. many things are different. Yep. How do you feel? Ab- is that
1: true? Uh, that whole coverage can be. I mean. There are simplistic ways to talk about gender, right? And the first woman headline is, in itself, if that's where you leave it, is simplistic. There there have been female scholars of the Homeric poems for centuries. There was a woman who translated Homer into French prose 400 years ago. So I'm not the first woman in that sense. And I I worry that the first woman headline involves erasing a lot of my distinguished colleagues and ancestors. And um, I don't want to do that. I hate that. And I also worry that if you say being a woman is the main thing about this woman, then you're being really reductive and suggesting that all the choices that somebody makes if they're a woman are completely determined by gender. Whereas all the male translators never get asked about their gender. Right? We never have a conversation with a male scholar or male translator and
0: say, how does being male affect your work? You've not tackled small translations. You start with the Odyssey and now you're doing the Iliad. Not to sound like a high schooler, why do you think they're relevant for this time?
1: Part of it to me is that they're not relevant. And I think there's something so important about human beings having access to the imaginative worlds of people who are very distant from us. And I think that's part of what reading a very ancient work of mythological poetry, literature can do for us we're so much always preoccupied with what's happening right now and I think that's a lot of what ancient studies and ancient literature can do is give you this perspective on the world was not always like this, we didn't always tell stories quite like this and then once you've made that leap of I'm going to let myself be in this very distant alien world you can then also see this is a world of intense feelings about human beings who are enraged and full of grief and full of fear and loss and shame and those feelings and that humanity are absolutely relevant.
0: We're very used to thinking that we're in the worst time ever. Yes, absolutely. Literally, just like this is a kind of end time scenario.
1: Absolutely, yes. So the Trojan War, the setting of the Iliad is an end time scenario. It's a myth that's all about this beautiful, wealthy city that's been inhabited for generations that will soon and within the world of the Iliad before the year is out, this city will be demolished and no people will live there. So this way that many of us are living in places where, you know, who knows if my children will be able to live in most of the places that are inhabited now in the globe. I think it resonates with the story of the Trojan War in really deep ways.
0: When you translated The Odyssey, this was back in 2017, what was that process? I don't know if you're like sitting down doing this longhand I don't know. Like, I have zero idea how you even begin something like this.
1: I've been reading the Homeric poems in Greek for many years before. So there's a sort of buildup of... I've been reading them, teaching them, thinking about them, thinking about the existing translations that I'd used with my students. But then once I got started on trying to create my own translation, I did did use longhand a lot. I did a lot of reading the Greek out loud, thinking about how does it sound, what kinds of things do I want to convey, things like sound and alliteration and meter, as well as characterization and speed, pacing. And I would do drafts by longhand in notebooks. I would do a lot of reading, rereading the original poem, and then read some commentaries, look things up in the dictionary, look them up again if I feel like I don't fully get the connotations of that word, because I can't phone Homer up to check on that. But I do that equivalent by looking things up in the dictionary.
0: I want to talk about the Odyssey, which you've done already. This is one of the big so-called epic poems, and it's the Greek hero Odysseus, right? Mm Yes, yes. King, king of Ithaca. Mm -hmm. He's on his journey home after the Trojan War. Do you know offhand what is the first line in ancient Greek?
1: Like that.
0: What's your first line?
1: Tell me about a complicated man.
0: Why is yours shorter than the ancient Greek? (laughs) Mine is shorter because I use
1: pentameter, iambic pentameter, because it's the traditional poetic meter in English. It's the meter that Shakespeare and Milton use. Whereas in ancient Greek, in archaic Greek, the natural meter, the traditional meter for narrative verse is dactylic hexameter.
0: Wait, wait, I'm going to stop you because I don't understand anything about what this means. So for people who don't know... Why, why is yours shorter, and I mean this almost in the spiritual sense?
1: Mm-hmm. I think th- I wanted to convey the clarity of the original. The original doesn't have a, comp- have a difficult kind of syntax. So I think, we think some translators have a sense that it's got to sound kind of bloated, and sometimes they make the translation even longer than the original. I think English has a lot of really powerful short words. And it's possible to use those really powerful short words to get a lot of nuance and punch into the poetic language so it's not necessarily not poetic. It's metrical.
0: Okay, this wasn't the only choice that was up for scrutiny. Emily Wilson has also made some word choices around certain characters, specifically women. For instance... If the ancient Greek used the term dog face in reference to a woman, should that translate as slut or whore or worse? Because that's how it's been done in the past. To me, it's quite a surprise
1: that so many um, 20th century translators went for that kind of choice. Like I think the Robert Fagel's one uses whore in that line and the Stanley Lombardo one uses something similar and so on. I mean, there's not a literal translation. It's very far from the Greek. And it seems to me quite surprising that these translations, I mean, the Lattimore is very often touted for fidelity. It's not a very faithful translation if you've left the metaphor out. One thing that I would point to is the fact that that same word is used in the initial quarrel at the start of the Iliad when Achilles and Agamemnon are yelling at each other and Achilles says to Agamemnon, You dogface! And if you look at the Lattimore translation of that line, it's the same word in the Greek. He doesn't have Achilles say to Agamemnon, you slut, which would, I mean, in way might be quite good, but it wouldn't have the metaphor. So to me, it's important to translate the metaphors and let the reader figure out. I think that this is another moment of ambiguity in the text. What exactly is Helen saying to herself or about herself? Is it an insult? Is she distanced from herself? What is it to be like a dog? I mean, a dog is, a, is an animal that can eat the same food as men, but can also live in several different men's houses, as Helen does. And there's this sort of question about a dog's loyalty. Is she as loyal as a dog or as much of a hunter as a dog? Or does she look at, look at you and you don't know what she's thinking when you look back? I want that ambiguity in the, the questions about that metaphor to be available to the reader of the English. And you don't have those questions if you just have Helen seem to be shaming herself for sex, which is not an obvious reading of Greek.
0: It sounds like you're saying they made their own choice there, and it was informed by something other than the translation, other than a literal translation.
1: Absolutely, Yes. It was informed by something about interpretation. And of course, everyone is interpreting, but you can decide like, how far to interpret in which direction. And to me, prioritizing the metaphors means I'm not going to do that.
0: Rather than saying, well, we know, what, we know what we mean when we call a woman a dog face. Therefore, it's this.
1: It must be that, yes. And I think it doesn't necessarily mean that. It might mean something
0: else. So then how do you hear the criticisms of the way you have injected your politics into your translations? Does it actually resonate in a way?
1: I'm not sure that I have really injected my politics into my translations more than anyone else. I mean, if if it's political to think female characters aren't going to be inherently less interesting than male characters, enslaved people might be interesting characters in this poem, and I'm not going to assume that I'm, I can ignore them because they're represented as being enslaved or dehumanise them because of that. I'm not going to go into the text, assuming that some humans are more human than others. I don't know if that's political. I, I, you know, it could be seen as political, but I don't think it's necessarily party politics. I think it's a way of sort of asking questions about how humanity has been represented in different eras.
0: You've said in some ways that this adherence to being faithful, to using that word, that that is gendered in its own way. Yeah, I've
1: said that and I don't know if I agree with it.
0: When you said it originally, (laughs) what did you think you were trying to do?
1: The issue you've been asking me about of how judgy people are about translations and how much people always assume that there's a right answer and some people get it wrong. And the models about any kind of infidelity means you're evil and wrong and we're going to cause some kind of equivalent to slut shaming about deviation from whatever the received truth is. So I, I think it can be not actually literally about gender, but tied up with a similar sort of dynamic about how we judge loyalty or fidelity in many different spheres of life.
0: Why do you regret saying that?
1: I mean, I'm not sure how helpful it is because I think it sort of intertwines questions about gender with questions about social fidelity, none of which I think think about most of the time when I'm working on my translation. My daily life as a translator is I'm immersed in this really difficult and fascinating task about these words. And then here are a hundred different words I could use in English to render these same words. I can think of 50 different ways of doing this, each of which would be responsible, each of which would tell the truth in some way or other about the Greek that's there already. Which of those truths do I most want to tell? Which is the most true out of 50 different possible truths? What does that have to do with gender? Mostly nothing, I would say.
0: After the break, Emily Wilson's next epic journey, writing fiction. We'll be right back.
2: For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale
0: system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. As we're digging into the whole idea of translation, I wanted to be upfront with Emily about my own feelings on this issue. For example, I'm kind of attached to the King James Version of the Bible. My grandmother had this, like, tattered copy with Gold leaf and illustrations, and to me, verses like, say, Psalm 23, are especially beautiful. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. And when I hear other translations, God, my shepherd, I don't need a thing. I flinch. I asked Emily Wilson, classicist and translator, if I should feel bad about this.
1: I think there's a real beauty to the language of the King James Bible. I completely agree with you. It's a beautiful text, and it's a a beautiful text in itself, even if in some ways it plays fast and loose with the Hebrew, but so do many great translations play a little fast and loose with the original sometimes. I mean, I I do think you're also wrong to think... A translation of a poetic text, which obviously the Psalms is a poetic text, just as the Homeric poems are, it needs to sound poetic. And whatever that means is going to be different depending on different people's sort of notions of what, what are the criteria that makes something sound poetic. I mean, to me, meter is essential. So those non-metrical free verse translations like the Latimore doesn't sound like poetry to me insofar as it doesn't have a meter. It's not just about sounding fancy or sounding oldy-worldy. It's about having a rhythm or a sound.
0: Which I will admit, sounding fancy or, as you succinctly put it, oldie worldy, is in fact something <laughs> that people think is a real thing. Like yes. like what you're doing doesn't sound like poetry because I understand it. So uh-huh. how could it possibly be poetry? <laughs> that's sometimes I yes. feel like when I read the critiques here and there of you, mm-hmm. the implication.
1: I think that's very funny. I mean, there's a lot of poetry but is quite clear. I mean, there's a lot of great poets who, are, who have something to say and say it and say it in resonant ways that is memorable. I mean, to be or not to be, that is the question. It's poetry. And it's a really clear question.
0: So it sounds like you're saying that that knee jerk reaction to this doesn't sound like what I'm used to. It's not like a wrong reaction to have. It's sure. Just, what, where it goes next after you have that reaction?
1: <laughs> it doesn't sound like what you're used to. I mean, if it did, then what's the point of me spending 12 years doing this, right? I
0: mean, if I was just going to write out the exact same thing, that's a waste of everyone's time. What do you want to work on next? I mean, this has been part of your life for the better part of a decade, more than a decade, right? Mm-hmm. Yep.
1: It's Well, I'm going to be going through some terrible grief and withdrawal process, but I'm also helping that by doing a, um, I'm doing a, a different genre, not translation, but a retelling of Trojan war myths um, as a sort of sequence of short stories. Um, and I want to focus on the myths that don't make it into Homer. So I want it to be a sort of supplementary read or a way to warm up to reading Homer, depending on which order you want to read them in, um, by telling the, all these stories which were there in the background when you read the Iliad and the Odyssey but not in the forward. does it
0: mean it's this is you taking a big risk right because now this is you just writing like maybe Homer seeding the ideas, but now you really got to you are starting more with a blank page than you would have in the world of translating.
1: It's a different genre from what I've ever done before. I mean, I've written monographs, biographies before, and sort of criticism type of things, and I've, obviously I've done a lot of translation, but I haven't published any fiction before, and this is much closer to doing a book of fiction. And I've started, and it's super exciting. I love it.
0: What scares you about it?
1: You want me to be scared? Maybe I'm not scared. No, maybe maybe you're not. You know, I feel mostly really excited. (laughs) Well, (laughs) listen, after
0: all the flack you you got for doing the translations, you've got a thick skin. You're ready for fiction reviews.
1: I'm ready for it, yes. Don't look at
0: Goodreads. That's the only thing I've learned from my friends. Don't do that. (laughs) You can't
1: take that stuff too seriously, too. I mean... The, if the Iliad teaches us anything, is getting getting het up when somebody insults you. That doesn't have good consequences for anyone, you know? If Achilles had just said, okay, Agamemnon insulted me, I'm cool, moving on, we wouldn't have an epic poem with, with that many massacres. At least
0: one or two fewer massacres. <laughs> At least one or two fewer massacres, yes. Is there anything you'd want to ask me... Um, as a journalist or a reporter, because you've sat through a lot of interviews, um, and I'm wondering if you've ever had questions from the other side uh, of of the the glass, so to speak, about our interest in your world, because you've had a lot of profiles written about you as well.
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah, I have. Yes. Thank you for asking that. I mean, I guess, do you see any connections between what you do as somebody who's Make, taking other uh, taking other people's stories and then making them into something yourself. I mean, it seems to me that your work is also a work of translation. And so, I'm wondering, Ooh. do you do you recognise yourself in some of that? I mean, I see you as somebody who's able to sort of collate all these different stories and then make it into something. Which the story that you're going to tell about me is your story about me. So you're translating me. Does, does, does that resonate I with you? am. No, yes. no,
0: that's true because I've I'm going to take elements of your story. And shape them in a in a narrative. And being mm-hmm. an interviewer, it's uh it's also a little tricky because it's just going to be your voice and mine, right? Mm-hmm. So I'm doing it over the course of the conversation. Mm-hmm. You already heard in a way me doing that, mm-hmm. tying it back to you being eight and creating yeah. a through line. I right. just like I made it up, mm-hmm. and you confirmed it. Yes. It is a truth. Yes, but, but you- as you said, there's a lot between when you were eight and now. Mm-hmm. So to your point, yes, we are making, uh, we are trying to make a story out of material. Mm -hmm. And a story is different from a translation.
1: It's different, but it still has, I think some of the, the imperatives are the same. I mean, you want to be responsible. And you want to, you're you're aware of multiple different possible stories you can tell. And you're thinking through, how can I be responsible about this? And also make it feel alive, right? You want people to listen. You want people to feel engaged. How do you do that? And find a story that's both worth telling and truthful and feels... Like it makes sense and people want to hear it. I don't know. It seems to me that... No, no, I'm glad you're saying it because different.
0: we are also under the microscope for truth. Mm-hmm, absolutely. You know, we're yes. constantly being asked that there are the facts and then there's the truth. Right. And, and the truth
1: involves thinking about what do you leave out too, Right.
0: The what you leave out is coming under more, more scrutiny than it did ever before in yeah. our business. Mm-hmm. And um, if you leave something in, why did you leave it in and how do mm-hmm. you portray it? Mm-hmm. Um, and I think you're right. Like journalism does have that. Mm-hmm. In fact, I'm thinking about the photo of you in The New Yorker and it's a photo of you sleeveless with all of your tattoos. Mm-hmm. And the implication I feel like in that image was like, Look at this badass lady (laughs) shaking up the classics. Like that was what they were trying to convey, right? It's a very different story from the story I might have through this interview where people will hear a presentation is, well, this very nice British lady in her attic (laughs) is talking about Homeric poems, right? Like, which is the truth? You're both ladies.
1: I'm that lady. Yes, exactly. You're both of those people. I'm that, I'm but my story people.
0: won't have that, right?
1: I mean, now you've talked about it, so who knows? Maybe I'll keep it in, and <laughs> let people people all hear. But you know, I but did. I'm
0: so glad you asked that. There is something about your work that I did feel reminded me of, like, oh, yeah, what is the truth of a story? Right. And, and I guess also
1: and I mean it strikes me that people put a lot of scrutiny on journalists, but it's but more on women journalists than men journalists, right? I mean, there's that question of how invested are you personally in the story and you're supposed to be, but you're not supposed to be too much so, or there's like the judgment about like who who gets to tell which stories. And I think that that sort of thing that we've talked about in the relation to translation a little bit with people doing the ridiculous, she's a woman, so she must be woke and she must be illegitimate kinds of stuff. I think that also happens in journalism. I mean, you can tell me if I'm wrong or right about that.
0: No, I think it does. And I think that one of the things I try and do on this show is not open the story with those framings, Mm -hmm. meaning the opening of this story won't be there was a woman who translated Homer, right? I'll just introduce you. To me, I'm, I'd rather hear about you as the eight year old who grew up to be mm. classics Athena mm-hmm. than I would a woman, a feminist yeah. professor, has mm. translated Homer. <laughs> to me, yes. those, but I'm making a choice, as you said.
1: You may, uh, I guess I'm, I'm now worrying about this conversation. I'm thinking, should, should I not even have talked about the whole gender thing at all? I feel like there's no right way to do that. Because it's also just validating the people who say, I
0: don't know. That's true. Here, I think of it a different way. I don't know if this will help you. Mm. I think that there is going to be a kid, girl, boy, whatever, there is going to be a kid who's going to encounter the world Homer through your eyes or uh, a new story through mine that maybe will get to do it um, unbound by certain conventions because we have made... That decision,
1: mm-hmm. yep,
0: and so fine. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Like that's that's what you and I will do. We will mm-hmm. will wear that armor for a little while because it means another kid will they won't blink at a version of Homer that doesn't use a slur on a woman, mm-hmm. a gendered slur mm-hmm. to make its point. Mhm.
1: That's an inspiring and thing to say. Thank you so much. Do for you know what that. I mean? I like that. maybe yes. that is yes.
0: a different way cuz <laughs> I I do think about like oh yeah, why do I have to uh, do, 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 do. but I do look at my kids and I see them pick up the comic books and see a black mm-hmm. comic hero or yes. whatever and they don't think about it. And someone had to do that. Someone, someone had to, had to be that. the first to have that dialogue. So for those of us who spend our time telling the stories of heroes mm-hmm. big and small That's like kind of why we do it, I would think.
1: Absolutely, yes. It's, It's to change things for the next generation.
0: That was Emily Wilson, Professor of Classical Studies at the University of Pennsylvania and translator of the new edition of The Iliad. It came out this month. By the way, we are taking more new assignments, and if you have one for us, please give us a call. Tell us what's on your mind. Our number is 202 854 8802. And for the record, I love listening to these, and we might use your voicemail in a future episode of the show, so don't be shy. This episode of The Assignment, a production of CNN Audio, was produced by Lori Galleretta and Carla Javier. Our producers are Dan Bloom and Jennifer Lai. Our associate producer is Asoke Samuel. Matt Martinez is the senior producer of our show. Mixing and sound design by Michael Hammond. Our technical director is Dan DeZula. Our executive producer is Steve Lichtai. As always, special thanks to Katie Hinman. I'm Audie Cornish. And of course, thank you for listening.